Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin? Father, I ask again that you would be our teacher through your spirit. Father, I pray that my voice would hold out, that it wouldn't be a distraction, that the coughs would be suppressed, and all those sorts of things. And mostly, Father, we just pray that we would leave today understanding what it is to live a satisfied life. Help us to see idols for what they are, foolish paths that lead to nowhere. And help us to live our lives for Christ, who is of supreme worth, supreme value. Help us to see your glory, even a glimpse of it today. For a glimpse of that is what we need turn away from the things of this world. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Our time is limited. There's only so much of it. In fact, the average person is given about 80 years. Or, and I didn't do the math on this, and it's a good thing I didn't, 29,000 days. Now, if that sounds like more than you thought you had, uh, keep in mind, though, we don't get to spend those days entirely how we wish. Some of those hours and days, in fact, are allotted to things beyond our control. 
A couple of weeks ago, I read an article by an old professor of mine, Dr. Kevin Bowder, who happens to be one of the smartest people I've ever met. But he, in his article, wrote about time and how we spent it. In the article, it, he explained how a quarter of our life is spent simply growing up. Cradles, diapers, learning to walk, learning to talk, walk, all that, etc. See, the first 20 years is basically preparation for the next 60 years. That's what it is. You got to go to school. If you're like me, you hated school, but you had to be there because you were being prepared for the next 60 years. Now, if you're a doctor, a scientist, a lawyer, and even a pastor, your preparation phase is going to last a whole lot longer than just those first 20 years, more likely to your 30. So the first 30 years is going to be spent in a preparation phase. At the very best, after that's calculated in here, we have about six decades, and this is really, really important, my dad and I can attest to this, with a fully developed frontal cortex in our brains to make decisions. Who knows what I'm talking about? That makes a big difference. And for guys, it develops in your mid-20s typically, sometimes later 20s. Women, it develops much earlier on. Fancy that. But we have about six decades with a fully developed frontal cortex in our brains to begin making adult decisions that can contribute to the rest of our lives in a serious and meaningful way. That doesn't sound so bad. That sounds like a lot of time to spare still, doesn't it? Well, bear in mind that of those 60 useful years, we typically will spend about 20 of them just sleeping. There goes 20 years. Cross that off. Um, which means then we are left with only about 14,600 useful days left in our lives to make serious and meaningful decisions. Now, unless you're born into riches or you inherited it early from like a rich uncle or something like that, you're going to have to work for a living. Most of the time, you're going to have to work for a living, which means for the average person spending about eight hours a day, five days a week, if not more, working. Now, factor in that most people get, on average, two to four weeks of vacation a year, and they typically retire around age 65. This leaves us with only 12,500 days left to live our lives in a serious and meaningful way. Now, one more thing to factor in here. How much time do we spend driving back and forth to work? Less now in this post-COVID world, but how much time do we spend preparing and eating meals, caring for our personal hygiene, some of us more than others if you're a prima donna, shopping for groceries, doing housework, filing taxes, visiting the doctor, going to the dentist, getting the car fixed, working on our house, renewing our driver's licenses, which is a very long process sometimes if the line is long. At minimum, though, we are talking about two hours a day and poof. There goes another five years of our life, just spent on minuscule tasks like that. Things we have to do to survive in this world. Another 1,800 days just like that out the window spent on those things. Which means then, after all is said and done, we realistically, as grown adults, with functioning brains, with life set up, career before us, we have 10,000 days left to live our lives in a serious and meaningful way. Does that sound like a lot to you? Bear in mind, 
we're not today, most of us sitting here looking at this 10,000, right? A lot of us are, some of us are even past that point. Like we're, we're on expired time, right? The point though is the amount of time you have to spend how you choose is already eaten up by other things. As Bowder points out, on the scale of human history, even this number, this 10,000 days, this is a very generous number. We have a larger number today than many people in the past did. We can turn our sink on and water comes out. Wow, that used to take a long time back in the day to have those sorts of things. We have much more leisure time today, free time we could call it, than at any other point in human history. 10,000 days then to spend on amusement, to spend on recreation, to spend on entertainment, service, and study. So the question we have to ask ourselves, or I mean we should at least if we're going to be wise at all, how should we spend these short years in what the Bible calls a vapor? That's what our life is. It's a vapor. It's here for a moment and poof, it's gone. Some spend it on hobbies like fishing, golfing, watching sports, maybe traveling. Others spend it reading novels or maybe reading books about their hobbies, uh, specific subjects that interest them, things like that. Others will spend it with their family. Others will spend it every waking minute of their life working on their special project. Maybe that's their house. Uh, Maybe it's their business. Maybe that's what their life is about. It's making this business thrive. And so every waking hour goes into that. Maybe it's golfing, fishing, whatever. It could be anything. It could be their car. It could be accumulating wealth. You get the idea. And so the point is, if we are to live our lives in a serious and meaningful way, how do we spend these few hours that we have? 10,000 days. How do we spend them? Well, as a Christian, we certainly are going to want to at least spend some of our time right in devotion to God. Right? So we better go to church on Sundays, right? Check that box, then we're good. Right? Okay, well... You're good, that is, if you're okay with giving God less than 1% of your time. That's really what that comes down to. It's less than 1% of your time. As Bowder goes on to explain in his article, he says, those who take church membership seriously and actually participate in the life of Christ's body here on earth, they will come to discover that their corporate worship, that's coming together and worshiping like we're doing right now, their church fellowship and instruction is actually triple that amount, if not more. However, worshiping and serving together as a church body is just one part of the Christian life. It's just one element of it. For the Christian walk involves so much more. It involves reading and studying God's word in order to hear God's voice. It involves both public and private worship. It involves prayers of confession, prayers of petition, prayers of praise and intercession. It involves meditation on spiritual truths, to understand their power and their application. And all of this is done, why? Not to get spiritual brownie points. Not to get God's blessing in this life. Why is it done, church? It's done to get God. That's why we do those things. It's not to get a smile out of God and like get on his good list. No, we do these things because we are on his good list. We are his children, and we want to be close to him. A life of meaning and purpose, then, is a life that is lived how? Not chasing all the stuff we just talked about. Surely it's not. 
A life of meaning and purpose is a life lived in satisfaction of God. That's what, that's what drives you. That's what gets you up in the morning. So I want to ask you this morning, can you honestly say that you have found satisfaction in God and God alone and not the things of this world? Can you say that? Can you honestly say, if I have God, take everything else out of my life, if I have God, then I'm good, then I'm happy, then I'm all right? Don't answer that too quickly. That's a hard question. Like we're talking, take your family away, take your loved ones away, take all that, it's gone. Would you still be satisfied because you have God? Or maybe you're not even close to that. Maybe you're struggling to find even a little bit of satisfaction in God. But at the same time, you have this itching, nagging, burning desire to one day be satisfied in God. Anybody ever felt that before? I know I have, often. If that's you, whichever one you are there, Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 63, where we will find three things that we have to have if we are going to have any sort of satisfaction in God whatsoever. Psalm chapter 63. Here they are. To be satisfied in God, we must have a heart that craves God. I can't advance. Hey, Steve. Thank you, guys. Outline is coming now. be satisfied in God, and we must have a heart that craves God. A loud motorcycle. A heart that craves God, a heart that encounters God, and a heart that trusts God. Those are the three things that we have to have, and we find these three things in this chapter. All right? So stay with me here. To be satisfied in God, we must have a heart that craves God. Look at verse 1. Got your Bibles? You turn there? Because I'm not putting them up on the screen, so open your Bibles there. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. David's writing here of a hunger and a thirst that he has. What's his hunger and thirst for? What? God. Yes, thank you. All two of you got the right answer. For God. And this hunger and thirst for God is so strong. What does he compare it to? Look at the text. A desert. It's like being in a desert without food or water. Now, how long can a person last in a desert without food or water? Not very long, right? You're toast. That's what David's saying here. He's saying, without God, I'm toast. I need God. Burnt toast, actually. Deserts are hot. And so David is saying that his need for God, his craving for God, is his ultimate desire. It's vital. It's absolutely necessary for his existence. He needs God, and he recognizes that. How many are there in your life? Have you hit a point where you're like, I need God? A lot of us, right? You probably wouldn't be here this morning if that's not you. And so when it comes to satisfaction in God, which, spoiler alert for the end of the sermon, that's the meaning of life, being satisfied in God. It's not all this other stuff. When it comes to being satisfied in God, the first question we must ask then is, does my soul hunger does my soul thirst for God like David's does here in this opening verse? That's the question we've got to ask. And don't answer that too quickly, because here's the reality. You can be at church today, here to be satisfied in God, but you're actually not here to be satisfied in the God. What do I mean by that? 
I mean this, 90% of people will say they believe in God. You believe in God? Oh, yeah, yeah, I definitely do. Go around. You can see the surveys. There's tons of these that have been done. 90% of people will readily admit that they believe in God. But you know what? That doesn't mean they're seeking after him. Why would that be the case? Because the God they're seeking after isn't the true God. It's not the true God of the Bible. Not even close. I've got to fix this or I'm going to throw this off my head. Why isn't it the God of the Bible? Well, here's why. See, out of that 90% who profess belief in God, how many of them actually would believe in the God of the Bible? The God who created the world himself in six days and then walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. The God of the Bible who said when he looked down and saw all the sin at the time of Noah destroyed the entire world with a worldwide flood. Not some local thing. This was the entire world in a worldwide flood and saved Noah and his family. How many will believe in that God? How many will believe in the God of the Bible who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for you know what with you know who? How many will believe in that God? Number keeps shrinking here, doesn't it? How many of them will readily believe in the God who says you're so sinful that there's nothing you could ever do to fix your problem? Doesn't matter how many times you go to church. Doesn't matter how many times you pray. Doesn't matter how many times you say any Hail Marys. And nothing that will not fix your sin problem. Won't do it. The only thing that will do it is the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. That's it. And faith in his work is the only thing that will save you. How many will believe in that God? That number is really low now, right? Absolutely is. Do you see why there is no such thing then, church, as a spiritual seeker? You have all these ministries that are built upon seeker-driven ministry. If we can bring church down to the world's, the unbeliever's level, bring Christ down to them, then they will be attracted to Christ and they will seek after him. Because there's just so many seekers out there, but we've put Jesus so high up here they can't get to him. That is totally backwards, church. That is completely upside down. Because it completely misunderstands the depraved nature of the human heart. No one seeks after God. I'm not making this up. This is what the Bible says. Look, no one seeks after God. Right there. Not a single person. No one understands him. No one seeks for God. And what that means is no one seeks for the true and living God. You might seek for a God. There's a whole lot of people in our culture who are seeking for a God, but it's not the God. It's a God made in their own image. Not the God of the Bible. They seek after a God in their image. And you know why they seek after that God, not the God? Because that God will allow them to stay in control of their life. They don't have to bow the knee to that God. That God approves of all the things they do and disapproves of all the things of other people that they don't like. That's how that works. They they will readily believe in a God who doesn't infringe upon their rights, infringe upon their desires, infringe upon their dreams, and infringe upon their aspirations. Sign me up. That sounds great. A God who will approve of everything I do and he'll bless me? Who doesn't want that? The God of the Bible don't work that way, does he? Not even a little bit, no. He demands complete and total allegiance to him as Lord. You have to bow the knee. You have to repent. You have to turn to him. And that kind of a God, the God, is a God that we cannot seek after. Our hearts won't let us. They're incapable of seeking after that kind of a God all on their own. 
It's a God we can only seek after then, and this is huge, hear me when I say this, it's a God we can only seek after then once that God has sought after us. See the order there? That's the order. It's in this text. God seeks us first so that we might seek him. (laughs) One author I read this week pointed out that's why the order is here. He says, David writes first what? Oh God, you are my God, and then he moves to I seek you. You see the order in the text? It's not, I sought you out, and therefore you are my God. As if that were possible. That's not the way it works, is it? That's the opposite, actually, of how this works. Here's what Jesus says about it. All right, you don't like my words. Let's look at his words. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless what? The Father who sent me draws him. Unless the Father has sought them out, I cannot seek him. And so here's the thing, and I really like this. As one guy put it, I'll just summarize his point. It was this. That sense for God, okay, that like a sense for the true God, right? Because a lot of us here have that. A sense of God's absence then is a sign of God's presence. Does that make sense? I'll say it again. Here it is. A sense of God's absence, the God's absence, is a sign of God's presence. Because as a believer, we will often have times where we sense God's absence, don't we? Anybody in here with me on that one? I'm the only one. Okay, you all are high, righteous people. We've all sensed this. We all have highs and lows in our Christian walk where we feel God close to us. I don't mean feel as in the way our culture does, where we sense God's closeness, and then we have times where we're like, God, where are you? We all have that. And in those times, this is where I like this quote, a sense of God's absence, if we actually believe in the true living God, is actually a sign of his presence. Why? Why would that be the case? Why would it be the case that a sense of God's absence is a sign of his presence? Well, we just kind of explained it a little bit, didn't we? Think about it. When you have a nasty flu bug, and I mean like everyone just leave me alone and let me die type flu bug. Like it's that bad. You don't want to be around anybody. You don't want to even smell water. That's how bad it is. Does food at all sound good to you at that time? What if I brought your favorite food in? If this is like Rafferty's pizza, we bring it in there. You can eat that when you're sick. No, not at all. It doesn't sound good even a little bit. In fact, if you force yourself to eat it when you're that sick, what's going to happen? Gross things. You're going to throw it up. It's the same way with God. See, before Christ, before our salvation, where we were given new hearts (coughs) that were capable of loving God, none of us sought after God in the same way that when we have the flu, none of us seek after food. We got a sickness that's preventing us from doing it. It prevents our desire from doing it. Even if we know that that's good for us, that that has nutrition, that has value, we're not going to seek after God because we have a sickness. Yes, as we said before, we all long after a God that was made in our own image who exists to serve us, but we have no craving on our own for the true God of the Bible. But in Christ, now we do. And why? Because the spiritual sickness has been removed. Right? Cure has been given. We've been given a new heart that can actually love and long after God. And so now that we've been cured, now that our spiritual flu is gone, we have a spiritual craving. We have an appetite within us, not for the fake gods. Not entirely. 
sometimes we, sometimes we convince ourselves that, that that tastes good, that sounds good still. But no, now we actually have a true appetite for the true living God. That's the difference. Does, does that finally make sense? <laughs> Why your spiritual walk is often so filled with a sense of longing? With a sense of absence? See, if we're not careful, we can think, oh, this longing, this absence is a a sign that God's not there and I'm actually not a believer whatsoever. No, 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 church. That can be the opposite. That longing, that absence, that desire, that can be a sign to you that you actually do desire the God of the Bible. It's a sign that God has actually changed your heart so that you can say, as David says here, my God, which is the God, not a God. And this change has then caused your heart to crave the one who sought you. It has changed your heart to seek the one who first sought you. All right, so the sign of a heart that is satisfied in God is a heart that has a craving for God. Okay, we've all got that. Let's move on. But what if my heart doesn't crave him like it should? What if it ebbs and flows a little bit, right? What if I realize that? And that lack of craving makes me grumpy, sad, or unhappy all the time. And I just pretty much always live in that point in my spiritual journey. Like, I, I get up here, and it like starts to feel good. I start to feel like I'm actually walking with God. And then, boom, I'm right back down. It's like, this is terrible. This, this longing, this distance feeling of God is getting old. How do we fix that? Can we fix that? Yeah, we can fix that. First off, as one guy I read put it, Take hope in knowing that the sense of longing you're feeling is a good sign. We just talked about that. Let's leave it alone. He goes on to say, one of the ways you know you're a real Christian is not just that you know God is absent, but you long for the presence of God. You're unhappy and you're dissatisfied, and so you're upset. Of course, what we've been saying is that's a wonderful sign. Your unhappiness shows that he's at work in your life. Okay, so as we said, saying it for the third time, the craving's a good sign. But, as we just asked, what if the craving never results in feasting in my relationship with God? What if it never gets there, like it did with the psalmist here? What if my Christian life is an up-and-down roller coaster ride with the low points being complete indifference towards God, chasing the false gods of this world, and the high points merely being that longing? What if that's the case? After our morning worship service, we typically have some wonderful treats that are brought in that uh, people in our church put together. And as good as they are, I don't know if anyone else has noticed this, they're often quite sugary. Not all of them, but a lot of them are quite sugary. And one of the things Becky and I have come to realize is that our kids, when they come home from church, they're often, to put it as Ian puts it, not hungry. We get lunch out and they say, all right, here's your food, come eat it. And he says, not hungry. Like, okay. But the thing is, though they weren't hungry for lunch, they always seemed to be ravenously hungry right before supper time would come about. Any parents know what I'm talking about here with this? Right? Like, it's this cycle that happens almost every Sunday. So what they usually do at about 3.30, 4.30, somewhere in there before supper, is they ask for more treats, because all suddenly Ian says he's hungry again. Like, oh, you didn't eat your lunch, bro, you know? <clears throat> now, we're not completely terrible parents, at least we try not to be. So we typically don't give them more treats. Why? Because it, com- it just continues that cycle, that cycle of the junk food ruining their appetite. Some of you 
are ruining your spiritual appetites because you're loading yourself up on spiritual junk food. And so you're not being hungry for God, right? You're not, there's no hunger there. What's spiritual junk food? Sin. That's what it is. It's sin. And this isn't just talking about bad stuff, like lying, you know, all the things that we're not supposed to do. This is actually, this can be taking good things, and you take good things and you make them ultimate things that you live for, that you find your satisfaction in instead of God, and that's now junk food. And you're filling up on that. And so when it comes to God, of course you're not hungry. You've been filling yourself up on junk food. Not only does sin make us not crave God as we should, but like all junk food, it prevents us from being nourished as we ought to be. And so we're left then in this cycle of filling up on sin, junk food, over and over and over, never actually being nourished on God, which is actually what we need ultimately, right? That never happens. And so what's the result? Malnourishment, weakness, sickly Christians. That's the result. And so what you have to do then to get out of that terrible cycle is the same thing you have to do when you're trying to get out of that terrible cycle in real life eating junk food. What do you do? Throw out the junk food. Get it out of the house. Put some rules in. Stop feasting on stuff that doesn't nourish you. Root out the junk food then, the spiritual junk food in your life that you're feasting on that's preventing you from being satisfied in God. You can't just sit around church munching on Butterfingers, munching on Snickers, hoping you'll suddenly be hungry for filet mignon. It's not going to happen. Until we root out the spiritual junk food in our lives, <clears throat> here's what this is going to look like. This is, how, this is how you can know you're feasting on spiritual junk food. Your Bible reading is going to be a checklist that you just got to do. It's a duty, not a delight. Our prayer will be a chore. You'll get three minutes in, and you're going to think, how long has it been? And you're going to look at your watch. Our devotion to God is going to be forced instead of felt. And when it's forced, that absolutely prevents us from encountering God. It does. We will not encounter him. And if we don't encounter him, we will not be satisfied in him. This leads us to our second point. Look at verse 2. Let me give you the second point first. To be satisfied in God, we must have a heart that not only craves God, but encounters him. Okay, verse 2 now. So I have looked upon, your, upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied. How? As with fat and rich food. That's, that's fine dining right there is what he's talking about. And my mouth will then praise you with joyful lips. Now, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away, Becky and I were dating. And I, when we were dating, went off to college. And she was left back here in high school. She was a senior. We were a year, year apart, basically. So, and some of you don't know this. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you don't know this, but there was a time when cell phones and text messaging didn't exist. Weird, right? Like, those weren't a thing. 
Not at all. And in these dark ages, man had to not only share their phone with their dorm roommates, but there was no such thing as unlimited calling. You had to buy these little primitive cards that had minutes on them, and then when they ran out, you were, you were up. You weren't talking anymore. It just clicked, it was gone. You had to buy more of them. A racketeering gig or something. It was a very barbaric time. And so in that time, humanity was forced to resort to primitive communication tools like this. I don't know if anyone's ever seen these. Uh, but we had to resort to things like that. And so what happened was when I was in college, Becky was back here in high school, writing back and forth, we'd use these letters and write on them with words and send them to each other. Relax, I'm not going to read any. But when I got a letter, do you know what I did with that letter? I'll tell you what I didn't do. I didn't take the letter out of my mailbox, open it up, okay, cool, rip it up, throw it away. Didn't do that. I am close. I took it back to my dorm. I opened it up carefully. I smelled it because she sprayed her, sprayed her perfume on it. <laughs> We're on to your games, ladies. I read it slowly. Turning red, honey. Yes, you did. Paper doesn't smell that way. <laughs> I read it slowly. And when I finished it, you know what I did? I reread it another 17 times. Just that day, and then probably 17 on the other day. Why? It wasn't because I was like, man, there's some new factual truths in here that I gotta, I gotta get down. No, rarely was there anything new in there, like new data or anything, you know what I mean? Like, it never happened. I did this, why then? Because I wanted to take notice of all the punctuation, every little comma, the way she worded the letters, the little smiley faces that were drawn in there, all that kind of mushy junk. And this was because my relationship with her wasn't just intellectual. It wasn't. It was experiential. I wanted to try to know her heart behind the letter as much as the pure facts that were in that letter. And so I would study over it. I would gaze upon it. Church, until our relationship with God becomes like that, the Bible's just going to be a book of card, hard, try that again, cold hard facts. That's all it's ever going to be for us. Sure, we might enjoy discussing it. We might even enjoy debating it. We might even enjoy hearing it preached. But you know what? When we sit down in the quiet of our home, all by ourselves with nobody watching, we're going to open it up. And it's going to be cold to us. We will not have come to delight in God if it's cold to us. That's what that means. So for our appetites, if, let me back up, if that is the case for us, that is a sign that our appetites are still being filled upon junk food. And as we've already talked about, junk food cannot satisfy our souls. Junk food cannot satisfy us physically, and especially spiritual junk food cannot satisfy us spiritually. So what must we do? We must do as the psalmist says in Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How do we do that? By going to him, surrendering the junk food idols of our heart, and finding satisfaction in him. That's it. 
John 4, 13 through 14, here's what Jesus told the woman at the well. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. There you go with junk food and sugar, right? Eat some of that. Ten minutes later, you want some more. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Here are some of the ways we can know that that is our our state, that we can know that's us. Here they are. First off, better get a drink. God's attributes, his truths, are more real than our feelings. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. When the Bible tells us that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us, that nothing can pluck us out of his hand, that all things, including, insert the worst thing that's ever happened to you, works together for good for those who love him. When the Bible tells us that, we believe those truths, even when difficult times come, instead of panicking and freaking out, we believe those instead. When you sin and fail, not if, when, and you know that the Bible tells you that God is merciful, that he's gracious, and he's willing to forgive and restore you, instead of living in your guilt and your shame and staying distant from God, you repent and you go to him, knowing that he will love and forgive you. When you read God's words in the Bible, you have times, and this is very important, not all the time, Okay, this isn't going to be every time. You will have times where the words that you're reading in the Bible cause your heart to say, as the disciples did, did not our hearts burn within us as Jesus talked with us? Here's the point. Does doctrinal truth lead to burning worship in your heart? You have to have both. You have to have both to be satisfied in God. A horse has two sides that you can fall off of. One side you can fall off is the doctrine-heavy only side, where, man, you can sit down in a small group and you can really lay out the, you know, and check some people on their, their wrong theology, right? And the other side is just pure emotions. You don't even know if there's 50 disciples or 12, right? But you know what? You just love Jesus. You don't know which Jesus, but you just got love and emotions for him. Those are both two ditches we must avoid. And a Christian needs both. We need the emotions and we need the doctrine. We need truth and love together. Otherwise, we will not have a satisfied relationship with God. If we are worshiping God truly, we will not only have right doctrine, but we will have a right heart that craves God in a way that leads to outward action. It actually does something in your life. Like, look, if you said a prayer when you're 10... And then you have no satisfaction in God pretty much hardly at all. I'm sorry to tell you this. You're not a Christian. That's not how it works. It doesn't matter if the pastor stood up and was like, hey, you know what? Who here wants to go to hell? Well, I don't want to go to hell. I'll say a prayer. Okay, well, if you did that in the next 30 years of your life, you have not grown in any way, shape, and form in your satisfaction with God. You know what that means? You don't have satisfaction in God. Plain, simple stuff. An important sign of a heart satisfied in God 
is a heart that craves God that leads to outward action. What kind of action? Not only do you actually read your Bible, but you read it regularly. And in fact, and this is really important too, but after you read your Bible, you can't keep yourself from talking about what you read in the Bible because what you read in the Bible is from the one you love. It's from the one you're satisfied in. Do you realize that's what you do when you worship something? You talk about it? Think about it. C.S. Lewis talks a lot about this. We don't have time to get into it, but here's the basic idea. When you find an amazing movie, when you find an amazing book, an author, a musical artist, or a hobby or something, are you like, all right, this is amazing. I'm not telling nobody about this. I'm keeping this just for me. Nobody does that. That's weird. Okay? You tell everybody. You're like, hey, man, come here. Come listen to this awesome country band. And I'm like, brother, I love you, but no way. Okay? Like, you don't know me. I don't like country. Pop country. Anyways, but you get the idea, right? Like, we have to tell people about it. That's an act of worship because when we delight in something, we talk about it. We, we have to show people it. We go around showing people what they're missing out on. You're like a new grandparent with the brand new grandbaby picture, and you're going around like, hey, check out my grandbaby. And everyone's like, oh, okay, thanks. That's what you're like. The same is true about a heart that craves God and a heart that has actually encountered him. It talks about him. And it talks about him because it delights in him. And it talks about him in a borderline, obnoxious, too much way. You can't help yourself. Why? Because you're in love. You have a relationship with the one true God. You have seen his glory and it has changed you in ways you never could have changed yourself. And if you find yourself not doing that at all, well, you got some examining to do. But if you find yourself struggling to do that, there's two things here that are at play. Either you're not a Christian at all, or you've got some major spiritual dieting that you've got to do in your life. You've got some junk, through, junk food to throw out. One more thing here. One of the signs of a heart that craves God and has encountered him is a heart that prays to God in worship. What do I mean by that? I mean this. You ever been to a prayer meeting before or just got together with a bunch of Christians and said, anybody have any prayer requests? What are 99.999% of those prayer requests involved with? What do they relate to? Asking for, you know, heal so-and-so. My brother's cousin, sister's neighbor in Uganda, their car broke. Right? My friend down the street, they've got cancer. And don't get me wrong, right? We're commanded to pray for those things. I'm not saying that's bad. You should do that. But if all our prayer is to God is the shopping list approach, we are missing it, church. We are totally missing it. If all our prayers are are asking for things, then our prayers reveal a problem because our prayers are revealing a heart that has not come to encounter God fully as it ought. Think about it. If our prayers are only petitionary, what's that mean? That means it's a shopping list thing. It's asking for stuff. I need this. I need that. God, give me this. Let's go. Amen. If that's what our prayers are, if that's all they are, we are truly missing out on a full encounter with God. That'd be like me writing Becky when I was in college with letters that just has the facts. I miss you. I would like a hug. I will see you a week from Sunday. Bye. And you say dumped, right? Like, not going to work out well. That's not a person who is, you know, in love, deeply in love. 
That's not a personal heartfelt encounter. (coughs) Without a heart then that craves God and encounters him fully, then our prayers will sing of his greatness. I'll say that again. Without a heart that craves God and encounters him fully, or with a heart that craves and encounters him fully, when we have that, our hearts will pray to him in the same way that we often sing to him. As one hymn puts it, praise my soul, the king of heaven. To his feet your tribute bring, ransom, healed, restored, forgiven, evermore his praises sing. Alleluia, alleluia, praise the everlasting king. Your prayers ever sound like that? Or are they simply, God, help me with this, give me that, give me this, help so-and-so? Again, you should have those. Do they ever get to that? They should. Because the more you see God, and this is why that attributes of God class we just did is so vitally important. The more you know who God is, the more, if your heart's been changed, right? If your heart's not been changed, you've got a dead heart, it's not going to work. But if your heart's been changed by the Spirit of God, you're going to delight in God's glory. You're going to delight in God's holiness. You're going to delight in God's grace. The same way that I was delighting, I mean, still, still do, honey, still delight in my wife, but especially back when we were dating, right? Like, I delighted in her attributes. This is how it is for the Christian in their encounter with God. When our hearts have encountered God fully, in that kind of a way, they will sing as the psalmist did in verse 3. Your steadfast love is better than life, so my lips will praise you. I know we're over time, but we did start late. But with that said, I just want to end with this. Has your craving for God led to an encounter with him? An encounter with him where you're so satisfied in God that you value God more than anything else in life. That you value him so much so that you spend your spare time, right, when you have nothing going on, actually thinking about him. When we all were, you know, deeply in love and all that and in that early stage of of dating, like, that's how it was. We'd think about the other person. We ever have that with God at all? Because that is what you'll need in order to trust him no matter what life brings. And finally, just quickly here on this third point, I just want to mention this. In verses 6 through 11, David writes how his encounter with God was so impactful that it caused him, as I just mentioned, to meditate on God even at night while he was in his bed. That's what the verses say. I'm not going to read them without time. And why? Because God was the one he delighted in. God was the one he trusted in. God was his help. God was his protector. And so David rests, as verse 7 says, in the shadow of his wings as he sings for joy. And you know, there's a high probability this psalm was written when David was running for his life from his son Absalom. And yet still, with his life in jeopardy, David could write in verse 8, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. He could still praise God. David's craving for God led to an encounter with God, which led to David trusting God, which resulted in David's ultimate hope being in God's coming final victory over evil. And how is all that made possible? Because, simply put, of what Christ did so that we could be spared from encountering the judgment that David just describes here at the end of the psalm. And instead of encountering the God of judgment, we can encounter the God of love, mercy, and grace who forgives sinners. 
no matter how bad your sins are. And so the only reason we can thirst after God is why? Because on the cross, Christ cried out, I thirst. The only reason our flesh can faint after God is because on a hill far away, Christ's flesh fainted as he bore the cross up the hill. The only reason we can look upon God and behold his power and glory is because upon the cross, when Christ looked to heaven to behold the power and glory of God, what did he see? He saw darkness. He saw rejection. As his life was then destroyed, alone, cut off, and his body was then sent down into the depths of the earth. And if he hadn't done this, our hearts would never seek him. Our hearts would never praise him, for they too would still cry out, crucify him, crucify him. But because because Christ did this, we too can now say, by God's grace through faith in Jesus, we can now say as the psalmist did in verse 7, because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. This morning I want to ask you, are you craving God at all? Not perfectly, nobody does that. You have a craving for God. Are you using the very short days you have been given to prepare for the infinite days to come? If not, you got some pantry cleaning to do, right? You got some junk food to throw away that's ruining your dinner. And do so because feasting upon God's glory, there is nothing greater. Nothing even comes close to comparison. To the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the God only wise, to whom all honor and glory are due forever and ever. Amen. May this be the song of your heart. Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you that we got through it. Uh, I just thank you, Lord, that we were able to look at it this week. I just ask that you would bless your people by it. So, Father, I just pray for the one here who isn't quite sure where they stand with you, isn't quite sure whether they've been approaching a false God that they've set up in their own image or the one true God. I just pray for them, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation. I pray for the one, Lord, Lord who is different, or who is uh, wandering from you. <clears throat> I just pray, Father, that their taste buds would change drastically. They would realize the junk food they're eating is not going to satisfy their souls, but that only Christ can. Help us to see your glory and your beauty. Help us to be a church that is in your word, not out of duty, but out of delight. For it is in your word that we experience you, that we come to know you and understand you and see your beauty and your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our closing song? Turn your eyes upon Jesus.